Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, September 17th, 2023, we continue our series titled, Knowing Jesus, the Gospel of Luke. Today's sermon, Power Over Darkness, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Enjoy. We're going to be in Luke uh, 8, 26 through 39, and we'll be talking about... uh, how Jesus interacts with a demon-possessed man. And in this power that we'll see over darkness, uh, there's a lot of distractions. And so in the weeks of study in this passage, it becomes real simple to be distracted into things that are not, they're important, but they're not necessarily the point. And um, as we unfold it, I would just encourage us not to get lured and enticed into the distractions. Um, with that, right, any discussion of demon possession um, is, uh, is always going to be distracting. Uh, I think our world, our system, our everything that has heavy demonic influence in our world, uh, even the movies as we're approaching um, uh, the October 31st and the number of movies that are being released that are center themselves on demonic activity uh, for our entertainment are just simply lures and enticements away from the person of Jesus Christ. And so I'm not going to spend, I'm going to give a brief overview of some demonology. And so if you're wanting to take uh, notes on particular scriptures to look at, uh, I would encourage you to write those down and take a look at them. Uh, But I would also encourage you not to make your focal point uh, demons. And so, but with that, right, the Bible itself Uh, has a tendency to speak very matter of fact about demons. But yet, Scripture itself provides little detail about them and their history. And uh, God has probably a very good reason for this. Um, We do know a few truths about demons. Uh, We know that demons oppose the kingdom of God, that they're against the kingdom of God. We'll get to that in a few weeks here when we get to Luke 11, 14 through 23. Um, it's important to understand that the, that the demons seek to deceitfully ensnare and manipulate humans uh, to do their will rather than God's will. We see that uh, testified to in 2 Timothy 2.26. And it's possible for demons to gain such an influence over a person that they can essentially possess a person. We're seeing that today in a person who does not know Christ in Luke 8, 26 through 39. And we also know that unless a person is born again, unless that person lives by the authority of the risen Christ, demons have the power of death. And over, um, power of death over uh, people, uh, and therefore people's fear of death. The demons play on the fear of death to maximize their advantage, and that's found in Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. We also know that there's a hierarchy of demons um, and their power. That's Ephesians 6, 12. And that there is a ruling evil uh, being, that's been known since the very beginning of time. The devil and Satan uh, is spoken of in Revelation 12, 9. Or that they manifested themselves as a serpent in the Garden of Eden. They were also present in the divine counsel of Job, in Job 1, 6 through 12. 
And we also know, based upon a few weeks past, that they tempted Jesus in the wilderness in Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. Beyond these, we don't really know much about the demonic world, the demonic world system that we live in. I would beg to say that you can just simply watch the news and see all the demonic activity. But because God doesn't tell us a lot, it starts to build these questions is why doesn't he tell us more? Um, Demons seem to be rather dangerous and influential. Wouldn't we benefit, wouldn't we truly benefit more uh, about our insidious enemies? And I want you to hear the answer to this clearly. The answer to would we benefit more by knowing demons and demonology, and the answer to that is a resounding no. No. Because when it comes to good and evil, Romans 16, 19 tells us to be wise as to what is good and innocent, not as to what is evil. Our best possible protection against demons is less of a preoccupation with them and more of a preoccupation with God. Less understanding of their deception and how they do it and more simple understanding of the truth of God's word. Remember, our desire for the knowledge of both good and evil is what has brought us to where we're at today. The desire to know good, the desire to know evil. Have you ever pondered and wondered why it was that God didn't want Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why doesn't God want you to know what is good and what is evil? For he wants you to only know one thing that's good, and it's him. Comparison is the robber of all joy. And the the hope that I have here today is that we not get lured and enticed into the distraction of demonology and the demon-possessed man, but see the main point, which is always, always the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, we come to you as your humble servants, asking that you would reveal your glory, to reveal your beauty, to see the loveliness of Christ and his compassion, his authority, and his power. Help us to put our faith and our trust into you and to you alone as we grow in grace and grow in a better and better understanding of our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I have this tendency to do something, um, and uh, it, it stems from just being human, right? But the, I, I bump into people who I grew up with. I grew up in just north of Los Angeles in Glendale, California, and uh, occasionally I'll bump into someone that I grew up with, and inevitably the question comes about, so Jeff, what, what are you doing these days? Like, well, I'm, I'm a pastor at a church, and you can tell by the expression on their face that they haven't seen me for 30 or 40 years, because they have that look like, oh, really? A pastor? Weren't you the guy who, you know, and, and it goes on. And they're like, well, how did that come about? And this is where I feel like I, I oftentimes fail, is I, I fail to talk about what God has done, and I tend to focus on what I have done. It seems natural to respond that I came to know Christ. Um, first time I heard the gospel was in high school, and it wasn't until much later, uh, post-college age, that 
um, that I came to really accept Christ and to walk with him and to pray with him. And, and I was changed. Uh, and, and it's always I, I, I. And I always walk away thinking to myself, man, that's just not the point. The point isn't what I have done. The point is what God has done in me. And uh, it's always disappointing. And I think we're going to see a bit of that message here today. So as we look at the first aspect of this, knowing that it's not what I have done, but what God has done. Let's come upon the scene and try to understand where they're at and what's going on. So in verses 26 and 27, we see point number one, the scene. It says, then they, talking about Jesus and the apostles and his, or disciples and his followers, sailed to the country of Gersenes, which is opposite Galilee. So we're going from the west side of the Sea of Galilee to the east. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. And for a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. So the first picture, of course, is that they're in fact coming from the, from the west side to the east side, which is leaving one country and heading into another. And in the country of Garcinus, which is opposite of Galilee, Jesus steps out onto the land and is, of course, addressed by a crazed, naked man who lives in the cemetery. Who hasn't experienced that, right? (laughs) Especially these days in most major cities. (laughs) But when we start to realize that what's happening here, it's more important that we start to focus on the reaction. How does Jesus react to this? It says, when he, the crazed naked man he's talking about, saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he, in verse 29, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And for many, many a time, it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. It's important to recognize that that he fell before Jesus. I would beg to say that this man in his humanity had never even met Jesus and wouldn't recognize him in a crowd of one. But in this particular case, the demons that are within him, in fact, recognize exactly who he is. They call him by name. They say, uh, what have you to do with me? They're focusing on themselves. Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. But because Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, simply because he's all powerful. But make no mistake, the demons know exactly who Jesus is. And he'll show us even more here in our point three. It is Jesus's authority that is in fact going to cast the demons out. But it is the demons (coughs) who are looking for permission. Listen to what it says. It says in verse 30, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? 
And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him to command them to depart into the abyss, not to send him to the abyss. And then in verse 32, now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these pigs. So he gave them permission, his authority to give them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the, sl- the steep bank and into the lake and drowned. First point here within the authority of Jesus. He asks the name, and the demon responds through the man, Legion. Legion is technically an army unit. And the army unit that it's talking about is at least 6,000 men. And so what he's saying is, I am legion. I am a collective of demons, probably in the area of 6,000 of them indwelling in this man. And these demons have complete control of him. But you note that he begged for no abyss. Please don't torment us and send us to the abyss. The abyss he's talking about is in Revelation 9.1 where it says, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. The demons were worried that Jesus was there to prematurely cast them into the bottomless pit where they would be tormented for all eternity. But the question still remains, why transfer the pigs to the abyss? Or, to the, or transfer the demons to the pigs rather than to the abyss. After all, they called him the son of God, the son of the most high God. They understood his absolute power. They weren't negotiating with him. They were in fact actually stating that it wasn't their time. If you go and you look at the same story in the Canocchio Gospels, if you go to Matthew 8, 29, it says, and behold, same story, And behold, they, the demons, cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The demons were calling Jesus out. I understand your authority. I understand who you are. I understand your power, but it is premature for you to put us into the abyss. That's to come later. Some of the other observations that are going on here is that this is a Gentile area, not a Jewish community, because, of course, Jewish people did not raise pigs. But importantly is that they wanted habitation. The demons did not want to be cast into something unliving or to be without a host. Jesus, of course, would never give them permission to enter another person. And so they requested the pigs as a good alternative. I'm not sure that they actually knew that the pigs would in fact kill themselves by running down the steep hill and off the cliff and into the water. But Jesus, of course, would not let them jump into another person. And it also was not their time to be thrown into the abyss. So pigs is what they got. Well, as this is going on, if you picture this scene and you, you picture the reaction and you picture uh, the authority of Jesus, we start to see that there's some scandal behind this. It's our fourth point, the scandal. Verses 34 and 37. It says, when the herdsmen saw that, uh, what had happened, they fled and they told it in the city and in the country. 
Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Verse 36, and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of, the, of, of Gersenus asked him, Jesus, asked Jesus to depart from them, for they are seized with great fear. So Jesus got into the boat to return. The first group, of course, is, is these people that, that basically was the way that they did the nightly news. They went out and started telling everybody what they had just seen, what they had just experienced. And what they had experienced is that Jesus encountered this demon-possessed man and suddenly all of our pigs went crazy and they ran down the hill and off the cliff and into the water. And people came out to see what is all that's going on where they find the historical guy in the community who's normally naked and is now clothed and he's sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. But verse 35, the people were afraid. And in verse 36, the firsthand witnesses shared what they had seen. And in verse 37, the people wanted Jesus to leave because they were afraid. Afraid of what is the question? There's three different people groups. First of all, there's the man that's healed of demon possession. He's probably the central character in this passage. He's important for our understanding, but he's not the point. He's not the point of this story. There's in fact local residents. These are the people who lived in the region where Jesus and his disciples had arrived. They witnessed the entire incident, including the healing and the destruction of the herd of sheep important in this story, but it's, it's still really not the point. Then there's Jesus and his disciples. This group includes Jesus and those who are traveling with him, including his disciples. And we know when we study text that Jesus is the point. So he's the point, but what is the point? The passage seems to revolve around these interactions among these three people groups with the healed man's transformation and his reaction uh, to the local residents being central to the narrative, but it's just really not the point. What was the fear? There's four possible things that the fear could have been related to. Fear number one is the loss of the pigs. The destruction of the herd of pigs was a significant financial loss for the community. Pigs were, of course, a valuable asset at that time in this life. This loss might have caused fear and concern about their future livelihoods. You've destroyed our incomes. You've destroyed our food. We want you to just simply leave. Or maybe the recognition of Jesus' divine authority. They've watched this authority, this all-powerful person, likely recognize that Jesus had an extraordinary, powerful, divine authority where even a demon-possessed man would listen and be changed. Maybe just being around such sheer power was 
overwhelming to them. I remember as a young single guy with a group of guys traveling in deep parts of Mexico, um, probably doing things that we shouldn't have been doing, but as we're traveling in deep Mexico, we came across a group of federales, and not being familiar with federales, these guys all looked like they were uh, fairly plain clothes dressed, but they all had high powerful weapons. And as they surrounded our vehicle, the unknown of what they're doing, let alone their power and authority, was a bit overwhelming. Maybe just the presence of Jesus' powerful move to cast the demons upon the pigs was overwhelming. Or maybe secondarily, the fear of the unknown, point three here, witnessing a man who had been demon-possessed, violent man, now sitting calmly at the right hand and in the right mind of, of, of himself would have encountered an unsettling experience. Or fourthly, the spiritual implications. Maybe there was fear in the spiritual implications. Some might have feared that, that Jesus' presence and his actions, um, they themselves may not have been prepared to confront the reality of the spiritual realm, and let alone the impact that it would have on their lives. You see, in their fear and their discomfort, the people asked Jesus to leave their region. Get on a boat and go back wherever you came from. The response itself highlights how encountering the divine can be unsettling and challenging as individuals or even as a community. I know positively the moment that Jesus returns and he comes back to us in the clouds and the trumpet sounds, there will be great fear. Even when he's coming to bring significant positive change. But see, none of this is the point. It's important, but it's not the point. The point comes to us in point five, the charge. This is the point. Verse 38 and 39, listen to what he says. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And when he went away, proclaiming throughout all the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Did you pick up on it? Jesus told him to go and tell people what God had done. And he uses the Greek word theos, meaning that one true God, or often the Son of God. But he's saying, tell what the Son of God, the Son of the Almighty, has done. But what does the man do? He goes and he tells the entire city what Jesus had done. And he uses the word Isus. He doesn't use Theos. He says Isus, which means Yahweh saves. He went and he told his homeland, his people, that Yahweh, the highest name of God, has saved me, has healed me. He's pointing to the fact that Almighty God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ has healed me, has saved me. He's getting to the most important point of all points. Jesus is God. 
But how does he want him to tell? He doesn't want him to go and say what, you know, I was once this. I prayed a prayer. I came forward at camp. I, I, I answered an altar call. He wants him to go and tell people what he, what third person, what God has done. It seems to me in this story there's progressing levels of meaning, but there's one point. Jesus is the Son of God. That's important. Jesus is the triumphant over unclean spirits. Jesus liberates the captives and gives hope to hopeless people. These are all important things, even to Gentile people in the town where he's at. But the point is simple. Jesus demands credit where credit is due. He does not save you to glorify you. He saves you to glorify him. His message is simple. I'm not the man I am because I approached Jesus when I was in high school. I am the man who I am because Jesus Christ approached me. He came after me. He set his affection upon me before the foundations of the world, and he would not let anything escape from his hands, not the demons, not anything. But his affection was to come after me, just as he just traveled from the west side of, the, of, uh, of Galilee to the east side, and he goes and he saves one man and then gets on the boat and returns. You see, I am not the man I am because people label me for who I was when I grew up in Glendale, California. But I am the man that I am today because Jesus Christ healed me. He healed me. As we call our worship team up and we, and we begin to, to worship, it is the goodness of God that has saved us. It is our responsibility to talk about God in the third person, not the first. What I have done is meaningless. What Christ has done in me is everything. It reminds me, if you, if you get a chance, if you've never seen it, Alistair Begg, who is a pastor in Ohio and has a, he's just fun to listen to because he has a Scottish accent. But when you sit there and you listen to him in this one particular sermon and he starts talking about the man, the thief on the cross, and he starts saying, man, I want to meet that guy one day. I want to, I want to go into the presence of heaven and I want to find the thief on the cross and talk to him about how all that happened. Because right before, right before he was entering into the kingdom of heaven in paradise that night, he was cussing out the Son of God. And Begg talks about how he comes face to face with the angels as he's entering into paradise city. And they ask him, how did you get here? And he says, I, I, I don't know. How do you not know? How do you not know how you got into the presence of God? How do you not know that? I just, I, I don't know. Well, let me, let me get my supervisor. We're going to talk about this. I mean, you've never, you've never been a part of a Bible study. You never joined a small group. You have no idea what church membership is. And you have no idea why you're standing here today. 
Let me ask you, do you understand that the doctrines of the justification by grace through faith alone? Never heard of it. Never heard of it. Do you understand that it is by God's word, by scripture alone, that people are saved? No. How do you, how, how did you get here? And the thief responds, all I know is the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the only reason why we're here. That's the only reason why we'll, we'll stand before him and we will never stand before him and say, because I believed, because I came forward, because I prayed a prayer, because I answered an altar call. I got the marketing advice from other people because I attended church, because I was in a small group, because I volunteered my services. No, brothers and sisters, you will stand before Jesus Christ because the man on the middle cross said you could come. Give credit where credit is due. Everything that we do is to the glory of him, and I and you have nothing to do with it but to trust him, to believe him, to put your faith in him. Because in the third person he was told, go tell everybody what God has done for you. This is why you're equipped to evangelize the lost. This is why you're ready to go. It's not that you have to learn more about God's word, more about doctrine, more about the deeper theology things, all wonderful things, but you are adequately equipped with the Holy Spirit and you have a testimony of what God did for you and how he healed you, amen? Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we worship and adore you. We come to you now and we ask, Lord, that you would take this message in our hearts and we would take it to our community to tell people what you have done in our lives. Could the gospel be so simple? Oh, but it is. But it is so difficult to let go of the flesh that it is not about what I have done, but what you have done in me. Help us, Lord, to grow in this grace. Amen. Amen. Our God is so good. So good. And your entire testimony of your life is the goodness that he has lavished upon you. It is his kindness. It is his mercy. It is his word. It is always in the third person. It is always in what God has done, what Jesus has done for Jesus is God. Amen? Oh, this today, if you, if maybe if this message has been something that has just caused you to wonder, right, I'd encourage you to go see our follow Jesus table and let those people pour into you and just let us have the opportunity to help you understand and grow and what it means to follow Christ and to be living testimonies of what he's done. We also have our prayer team that'll be down here in front and I can't encourage you enough to come down. If there's something deep on your heart, the power of prayer is so good. Or maybe it's just a time where you wanna come and give praise through prayer with another brother or sister. They are here to pray with you. Take advantage of that, please. If there's anything we can do, come see us at Info Central or find myself or any one of the other pastors we would so love to just pour into you with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to pray with you, to minister to you, that we would all truly grow in his grace.
our Father and our God, Lord, as we go out today, as we go out tomorrow and this week, Lord, would you help us to speak of you and how you have transformed us and how you have healed us and how you have saved us. For you are Yahweh and you save. Help us, Lord, to glorify you in all that we say and do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Don't rush off. Minister to one another, but we'll see you next week. I love you.